Our world needs climate action on all fronts, everything, everywhere, all at once. The Sustainable Hour. For a green, clean, sustainable July. The Sustainable Hour. Welcome to the Sustainable Hour. We'd like to start off, as always, by acknowledging proudly that we're broadcasting from the land of the Wathaurong people. We pay tribute to their elders past, present, and those that will earn that honour in the future. We acknowledge that we're broadcasting from stolen land. The land was never ceded. We also fervently hope that we learn the lessons that the Wathaurong people, our First Nations people, have developed over millennia from living in often harsh conditions. And there's so much to learn for us as we face up to the climate crisis. 10 years and two days ago, we started a new radio program here in Geelong, the Sustainable Hour. Community radio on 94.7 The Pulse. And the reason we are still here is because of you, our listeners. Our supporters out there, the stories that you tell us or the feedback that you give us and energize us with. So here's an opportunity now to thank you deeply from our hearts to say thank you for those 10 years. And also a big thank you to the Pulse station manager, Leo, who's kept us at the same slot, 11 a.m. every Wednesday over this entire decade. And the thanks goes, of course, as well to the more than one and a half thousand guests that we've had in the program. It's like a growing community, a real sense of community. Thank you for all the inspiration, the clarity, the optimism, constructive solutions that we've been presented to week after week from our clever and creative guests. Just like we've come to expect that it's also going to happen here in the program today. But first, let's hear what, let's see what the global outlook looks like. Colin Market, OAM. It's been a bit worrying the last week. So, what do you have for us today? Yeah, thank you, Mick. Our global roundup this week begins with two open letters, both of which were significant. The first was released worldwide and signed by 131 businesses, and it was calling for more action on climate change. Now, we're used to hearing this because these letters crop up regularly, and they have done over the last 10 years, as we know. But this one carried a lot more weight than the norm. First of all, the 131 businesses cut across industries and nations, and they include such companies as Volvo, Unilever, JLL, Mahindra Group, and Biochemicals. It's big, heavy hitters in the business world. And they're calling for specific action by world governments, that of controlling and reducing the burning of fossil fuels. Maria Mendelusa, who is chair of the group that's called We Mean Business, who sent out the letter, said countries have no options but to phase down on fossil fuels. Delaying the transition will make the move more expensive in the long run. So she's talking business to businesses. And then in New York, uh, a full-page advertisement in the New York Times was time to coincide last week with the visit to America by Anthony Albanese's party. 
uh, when he went there to dine with the president. The page named and shamed Australia, calling on the federal government to stop approving new gas and coal mines. The ad was funded by the Australia Institute and it was signed by more than 200 climate scientists and climate change experts. It followed on the United Nations Climate Ambition Summit, which we covered last week, and that was when UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres said in calling for the fossil fuel companies to reduce rather than expand their production, we must make up time lost by foot dragging, arm twisting and the naked greed of entrenched interests, raking in billions from fossil fuels, he said. Now, when Australia's foreign minister, Penny Wong, was asked about the damning New York Times advert and why her government was supporting opening new gas and coal mines, all she could do was repeat lines about Australia's commitment to build new renewable energy. And this was called out by the US journalists who were interviewing her and the experts also, um, who called her answer hollow, especially considering that her colleague, Environment Minister Tanya Plibersek, was that same week fighting in court for the right to ignore climate impacts when approving new coal mines. Elsewhere in the US, a new paper was published by the Oregon State University in the journal Bioscience. It described life on our planet as imperiled after finding that 20 of 35 identified planetary vital signs were at record extremes. The six climate scientists that wrote the paper began by forecasting that this year will be the hottest in the past 100,000 years. That's something else we've covered extensively over the last couple of months. It warned that global temperatures have soared to such an extent that the Earth has entered uncharted territory. They found that the record-breaking temperatures have increased the likelihood that the world will reach 1.5 degrees warming as early as next year, meaning humankind had failed to meet that central goal of the Paris Agreement. Unfortunately, time is up, wrote one of the co-authors, Dr. Thomas Newsom. We are seeing an alarming and unprecedented succession of climate records broken, causing profoundly distressing scenes of suffering to unfold. We're entering an unfamiliar domain regarding our climate crisis, a situation no one has ever witnessed firsthand in the history of humanity. That's a pretty uh, powerful statement. Among these record-breaking key signs were that so far this year, there have already been 38 days with global average temperatures more than 1.5 degrees Celsius above the, above the pre-industrial levels. Another vital sign that the report stressed was that fossil fuel subsidies roughly doubled between 2021 and 2022. Globally, it, it went from US $531 billion to just over US $1 trillion. That's the amount that governments are paying to fossil fuel industries to increase their output at a time when the rest of the world is calling for it to be reduced. From the top downwards, from Antonio Guterres downwards. Uh, the report said that the uh, highest Earth surface temperature ever recorded was in July 
And that was when the Canadian wildfires released more than a gigaton of climate dioxide emissions into the atmosphere. During July, August, September and October of this year were the warmest respective months since records began. Dr. Newsom said that from a scientific point of view, it was worrying to see these trends heading up in the wrong direction year after year. And that's despite these similar warnings happening decades and decades ago, he said. And we're seeing changes at a greater rate. It's happening quicker than people predicted. So to finish up on a more positive note, our favourite sports team, the world's only certified carbon emissions free sports club, Forest Green Rovers, they played Crawley Town at home last weekend and won 2-1. This is a team's second win in a row following a string of losses that saw them relegated last season and at the bottom for most of this season. But the win against Crawley lifted the Rovers from the bottom place to third from bottom. It's still in danger of relegation, but I will keep you informed. And this small piece of good news ends my roundup for the week. Listen to our sustainable hour for the future. The big question, which we have been looking for answers to in in a decade in the Sustainable Hour, is what do we do about it? All the things that you're telling us, Colin, all these reports that are coming in and keep coming in, but what are we going to do? And with us today, our first guest in our Jubilee program is Chris Wilson from something called Subak. And Subak, hmm, that sounds Indonesian, I think. Chris, explain to us what's Subak all about and uh, and do you have some answers to what are we going to do? Um, Mick, thank you. And, and firstly, before I answer that very simple question that you posed to me first, um, firstly, congratulations, 10 years on, on your show. That is absolutely amazing. Not easy to do, so congratulations. And thank you for all that you three do in support of what we are all doing around climate. Uh, and for everyone from Forest Green Rovers, who I'm sure are tuning in, uh, well done. What a fan- fantastic win. Um, my email is chris at subac.org. If you would like to sponsor our T-shirts, that would be very much appreciated. Um, so Subac is absolutely Mick, an Indonesian term. It's actually uh, very worthwhile, your listeners Googling it and doing a bit more research on it. But the short version uh, a subak is a Balinese um, farm cooperative. It's a term for bringing people together to share resources required to do whatever the farming might be. And clearly in the Balinese um, uh, farming culture, that is primarily rice paddies. And so subaks were brought together to really enable a sharing and a cultural sharing of many things, but the clear thing was water. They all need water. Water is the, the scarce resource for them all to be productive. And so Balinese um, subaks have been around for more than 800 years um, we are called the Subak because myself and two of my co-founders from the UK of the Subak uh, read a book and it was mentioned and it, it really hit a chord with us because we were thinking through the climate challenge and what we could do and thematics and words on the whiteboard that kept on coming up were collaboration, sharing. Um, we are not even, it's not even a gut feel anymore. We know it to be true that there are so many people on this planet, um, regardless of the negativity and regardless of the misinformation and the disinformation, there are so many on this planet, people on this planet, trying to do the right thing, wanting to do the right thing. And the danger then is that they're all doing it in isolation or pockets of community. 
but not just one big community. And so for us, SUVAC actually relates to data. So we're a climate-focused organization. We find and fund and support not-for-profits who are data-intensive, focused on climate change and climate action. And for us, the water of the SUVAC in the Balinese context is data. And so everyone who works with us and everyone that we support um, basically agrees to open source their data. They do their piece of work, they focus on what they're trying to focus on, and they create amazing data sets, raw data, they drive amazing insights from that data. And sure enough, if somebody else in Poland could see that data or someone in Argentina saw that data, they might say, wait a second, I've been looking for that piece of data. And it's not that you didn't want to share it with me, it's just that our contexts are different. And so we double down on what we want to do and we do great work. But imagine if you could go to a Google for data, a Google for climate data, and just say, I don't suppose anyone's got anything on methane emissions from far north Queensland, enter. And all of a sudden, here's all these data sets from people who say, well, funny, you should mention it. We just did a satellite scan of far north Queensland and here's all the extra methane emissions. Go for it. You know, do, do your best. Um, and so I guess, you know, to go back to your question, uh, my short answer would be, we double down on not-for-profits for a very specific reason. I'm from the for-profit world. I've spent 30 years in consulting and advisory. I was a partner at Deloitte for 14 years in their uh, digital and strategy practice. I ran their climate change business back in 2008 for three years before I realised no one cared, and then I went back to banking, and then I've come back to it now because people seem to be caring a little bit more. But one thing I've seen again and again and again when things really matter, and surprise, surprise to you and your audience, fixing mortgage processing doesn't really matter. So no one really does much about it. But fixing climate is sort of important. And what always happens when there's a really important thing to fix is there's lots of red tape. There's lots of regulation. There's lots of policy. It's almost like there's lots of reasons why we haven't fixed it yet. Um, and nobody who listens to your show will, will doubt for a second that we have a swathe of legislation, regulation, and policy that gets in the way of what a lot of great climate companies want to do. Simple things just like, um, can the UK just agree what their efficiency policy is going to be on automobiles and not just keep changing it? In Australia, from one state to another, can we just agree what the policy on carbon offsetting is going to be? Because there are great, amazing farms in this country which cross borders because they're enormous, as we all know. And they want to do regenerative agriculture and bake carbon into their landscape and generate carbon credits. But if your farm crosses the South Australian and the Western Australian border, you've got two different regulations that you need to adhere to. So there's just nonsense going on. And so we find not-for-profits are always clearly focused on outcomes, focused on purpose and impact. And the ones we've worked with are very much focused on getting through their data and through their derived insights, getting into the corridors of power and influencing that policy change. And I'll, I'll, I'll finish with this, Mick, because as I said, I've come from the commercial world. So a lot of my friends think, what have I done? Where am I going? What's wrong with Chris? I always say I'm waiting for the next Jeff Bezos to make trillions of dollars from solving climate change. More than happy for somebody to become the richest man or woman on earth solving climate change. But even those people have to go through the same doors and the same policies and the same legislation. So our companies we work with are focused on influencing government, influencing mass consumer change by policy and legislation. That sort of greases the rails for larger commercial entities to come in and do good. Fantastic. It sounds exciting. Can you give me some examples on, on some companies that you work with? Who are they? What are they doing? Yeah, yeah, we've got a variety. Um, so I'll give you, uh, I'll give you two, which are sort of at the extremes. So one is called the Good Rating Company out of New Zealand. 
Um, and I love what Kay and her team are doing over there. So they're basically just trying to come up with the, the, the you know, we've got the health standards on packaging. They want to come up with a green standard, but something that is actually based on supply chain, carbon economics. So then I pick up one muesli bar or I pick up another muesli bar. I can see which one's healthy for me in terms of salt and all those things that are really important, but I can honestly see which one is good for the climate and which one doesn't care where it's sourcing its goods from. And they've just um, signed a deal with, I guess, New Zealand's version of choice uh, called Consumer NZ that has picked up their first product. So they're very data intensive. They need to get supply chain data. They've uh, partnered with a group called the George Medical Institute, which we facilitated that introduction to. And the George Medical Institute has all the information that Kay needs from the good rating, but they were doing it from a health perspective. So this is your classic data moment where the data exists, but people's context of that data is very, very different. So that's what the good rating company is doing and clearly getting some traction and then going into lots of different SKUs in the in the supermarkets and then expanding. The other one would be um, a group called Open Corridor out of Western Australia. So Josh Hopkins is the director and founder there. And he's doing amazing, amazingly well and is actually going to be um, hopefully announced at COP28 with uh, a ma- major award. But if not, he's in the shortlist anyway. So he's done, done really well. Um, and in short, they're using data science and lots of different data sets to work with local council and state um, at the state government level on basically, in a nutshell, here are the dashboards of what you said you were going to do from a sustainability and climate change perspective. Here's all the data sets that we're now collating and collecting to prove whether you're on track or not. And then here's the things you now need to do to get back on track and report back to your constituents. So that to me is at the heart of what we're doing, because if you're successful, then those local council members will be heroes. Because they said we're going to do X and now they can prove they're doing X. That rolls up across council to another council, rolls up to the state level. So Josh is doing great work. And look, there's six other members that we've had through the uh, the SUBAC process as well who are all doing similar but different things. Well, first of all, uh, thank you, Chris, for your congratulations on our 10 years. But it's a sort of a muted celebration from our perspective because it means that we've spent 10 years ranting on about how we should be addressing climate change, um, mostly to be find ourselves sort of ignored. And it's very nice that you're there in the cutting edge um, advising businesses. You are basically an advisory group, are you not? What SUMAC does is advise the New Zealand uh, rating company rather than pour money in. Have I got that right? Um, Yes, you have in in general, but let me expand a little bit. But also, I don't want to steal your thunder, Colin, because it's negative thunder. But um, you you have not been ignored for 10 years, I'm sure, because any voice is really important in this space. But I'm holding up a book from 2008 that Peter Switzer wrote on the carbon crunch, of which I wrote Chapter 12. So I've been looking at this since 2008. So so, so hang in there. 10 years is is a long time, but I'm I'm with you. I've been looking at this since the mid-2000s and the frustration is palpable, but we need to stick in there. Um, Look, the best way to think about us, and then I'm going to take this back, is we're an accelerator for these companies. Now I'm going to take that back. We don't want to be called an accelerator because there's certain vibes in the industry around what accelerators and incubators do. And I'm actually quite a loud voice of some of them are quite negative because they're quite transactional. They take early stage companies, they pop them through a process, they make lots of noise, everyone gives them an applause, they have a huge drinks night, and then no one hears of them again. So, but what an accelerator does do is basically says, I'll just use Open Corridor as an example. So, Josh, I love, we love the idea. 
where are you at with your business model, where are you at with your product plan, where are you at with all the things you need to. Now, a lot of these early-stage startups, be they not-for-profit or for-profit, to be honest with you, and I still do a lot of work with for-profit startups, they look at you with, well, I've got the idea. And so they really need some help piecing together. How do we pull together a business plan, all the all the things you need to go from zero to 100 kilometres an hour as quickly as possible? So that's the acceleration phase. But rather than just be an accelerator, once you're in the SUBAC, we call you a member. And we call you a member very uh, specifically because you will be a member for life. We want you to hang around, come to every session we run. And then it's a series of um, programmatic uh, interventions. We run workshops on branding and marketing and getting government grants and getting into the halls of power to talk to politicians. We run all those sessions through our, our coaches and mentors, and we have about 20 of those who give their time freely. My advisory board is top-notch, so they get access to really, really um, experienced and expert people in their field. But then we also do very bespoke things. They can contact us and say, I'd love to talk to someone around personal PR. How do I get my own name out there? Or can you get me onto a podcast? So it basically create, it's like a university environment or a village environment whichever one you want to look at. So a university, everyone goes and does a science degree, but not everyone does the same science degree, but you need to get the core bits right. Otherwise, you're not going to get the science degree. You're not going to be called a chemist if you don't get the core bits right. But through your time at, at, at university, you could go into biochemistry or molecular biology. You can go into different fields, and therefore you need to have access to people with expertise in certain things. But you also have tutors. You have someone who was there just the year before. So they're a bit more of a friendly face. They're not like a professor who's been there for 30 years. It's someone who's just come out the other side and they hang around and they want to tutor people because they want the next generation of great scientists to come through. So we've created that sort of environment. And then we have a library of knowledge, kits, and access to people on the side. That's excellent. But I'm uh, just a little bit uh, concerned. Do you have difficulty with people unwilling to open their books to you because you, you need to have a pretty in-depth knowledge of each company before you even start advising. So we are a, you have to apply to get in. So mm -hmm. that forces some exposure because we need to see certain things. Some of it's very corporate. We need to see that there's a constitution, there's a company, there's employees, there's a bank account, all those sorts of things. Because to your first question, which I didn't didn't quite answer, we also do offer funding as well. So it's the funding and the and the in-kind support. Um, so we have to get the, to know the company from a legal perspective pretty early on because they're not-for-profits, we're not-for-profit, and so there's certain rules about granting funds. So they don't really have a choice. They Obviously, they can say no, but then we just say, oh, well, good luck, and we move on to our next applicant. So by the time they come into us, we've got to know them pretty well. By the time we've run two or three sessions and they've met me and the team and they've met the advisory board and they've met the other cohort members – we haven't had anyone who's not just an open book because they know their struggle. They know what they know. They know their expertise and they know what they don't know. And they know what their North Star looks like. And they know that we're just simply here to get them to the North Star as quickly as possible. So, Chris, could I pitch a business idea? And we have been, you know, an NGO. We have been volunteers doing this radio show now for 10 years. But we do think we have a business idea. And we launched it on Saturday when we were celebrating our 10th anniversary. The idea is to take what we're already doing, which is podcasting, radio shows, and so on, and take the idea that, that grew under the name of a series that, that I've been creating called The Climate Revolution, and take that name into the business world, starting a new podcast series that we call The Business Revolution. And where in many ways we would be talking, of course, more focused on what's going on in the business world. But in a way, we would be doing the same thing that we've been doing in 10 years. 
more or less what mm -hmm. we know what to do is to create podcasts and and discuss things and and bring up the latest news and and have people come in and give inspiration in this field and so on and then from that we were hoping maybe we could even begin to produce small e-learning courses on different topics that we had talked about in the podcast so that you could have a product that was actually sellable that's where the business aspect comes in not actually in creating the podcast the podcast i imagine still would be free but we would have products that we in a way promote in the podcast we create them because of the ideas that come in the podcast what do you think about an idea like that uh well i'll, I'll start with yes um uh way back in the in the 90s early 2000s i was um lucky enough to be part of a the world's first online bank which at the time we had no idea was the world's first online bank um until someone told us no one else was doing it um and we had a mantra which was to revolutionize the customer's experience of financial services so i think the word revolutionize and revolution is really really important um but with revolution then becomes key questions about how you enact that are you an you know activism based revolution are you advocacy are you planting a flag and everyone goes you know comes to you or are you or are you storming the barricades in you know the french revolution so i think revolutions are very very powerful but they absolutely need that real clarity of what's the point of the revolution and i think we know what the point of this business revolution would be i do think people are um shouting for well, they're shouting for it and they're really worried about where to get it. And what they're shouting for, and it's unfortunately it's happening with the Middle East right now as well, what's true? What is true? I know there's misinformation out there, so you don't need to tell me there's misinformation. I know there is. You don't need to tell me there's disinformation. I know there is. But what I don't know is where do I go to actually find out what does this mean, what does that mean, where are we at with these sorts of things? And the same thing is unfortunately true and has been true in climate now for 15, 20 years uh, are the stats correct? Um, what climate scientists do I believe? What climate science do I believe? What politicians do I believe? So, so, so I think if you then honed in on what are the real things that your listeners and the citizens of our country are wanting, it'd be giving them access to how can I unpick this for myself? Because I feel like I'm in everyone else's hands. And I know what I'm saying in this space to a certain extent. And I still wake up sometimes in the morning and go, you know that person who keeps telling us, oh, we're at 1.6 degrees, not 1.5. How do they know? Who's measuring that? Who are these people? Uh, and so even I go through panic. So we might be doing all this work and actually be off and still not really know it until someone goes, oh, sorry, I carried the wrong zero. You know, it's we're actually at two and a half. Bugger. That's That should, would have been good to know that a while back. So I think content is really, really important. Engaging with experts, people can eyeball and trust so a lot of video work would be amazing because, again, people are hearing lots of voices. It's often the same voices. And there's just this air of distrust of everything I hear. Um, so, no, I'm all for it. And I do think I read a great article on the weekend, it's a depressing article, but I'm glad it was written, saying ESG is dead. And I, I agree. Um, ESG is not dead as a idea, but ESG has been taken over by the financial system and being used against everyone who thinks ESG is a good idea. It's being used to greenwash. It's being used to do all sorts of things. And this just, article, just for the listeners who don't know what ESG is, the three letters, it stands for environment, environment social, and governance. And governance. And, and it's about companies when they sort of commit to ESG, it means that they are saying, we're going to be the good guys now. We're going to be good on the environment, good socially among our employees, and also the, with the governance. Correct. Correct. And it's just being proven again and again and again 
that um, companies who say it and do a lot of work around publishing stuff around it get get the kick, they get the up up kick. And yet if you go back 12 months, 18 months, 24 months later and actually measure what they're doing, some of them, it's, it's, it, they've, actually gone, they've actually gone more negative. It's almost like the government saying, we're not doing fossil fuels. Uh, pardon me, we'll also give you the, the fossil fuels some more money. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I'm all in on business uh, revolution. I can already think of a bunch of things that Subac could definitely do to, to help out there. Fantastic. We'll come back to you, Chris. I would like to introduce our next guest right now and, and hang in there, Chris, because uh, it would be lovely if we, we could have sort of a roundtable discussion towards the end of the hour. Janine Felson from Melbourne University. Welcome to our anniversary sustainable hour. Thank you very much, Mick, and congratulations on your anniversary. Um, it is a pleasure to be with you. And it was really lovely to hear all the work that has been done by Subak. So you have also a very international perspective on all of this. Let's hear about your background and, and what you're doing now at the university. Yes, thank you. Um, I do come from 20 years of multilateral diplomacy at the United Nations, working in um, the area of sustainable development, climate change and oceans. And I continue to do work within that space. Um, Importantly, I think I worked um, with very closely with the small island developing states, countries that span the globe, so countries from the Caribbean. I'm from Belize, and Belize is counted as amongst the Caribbean small island developing states, countries in the Pacific, countries that also share the Indian Ocean, uh, South China Sea, and in the past, Mediterranean. So quite a, a wide range of countries with very different backgrounds, but um, together they all experience significant impacts from climate change and are considered amongst the most vulnerable in the world. Um, so I've worked um, with the uh, what's called the Alliance of Small Island Developing States um, in the context of major negotiating fora uh, at the United Nations, including on the Sustainable Development Agenda, on the Paris Agreement, and then more recently on a treaty that uh, dealt with marine biodiversity in areas beyond national jurisdiction under the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. So quite a range, more in global policy, um, but definitely a lot of what you're talking about today and what you've covered over your 10 years um, is about connecting uh, what is occurring locally, but also to connect the local with the global, um, which is in important in, in any policy space. So what do we make of the next COP that's coming, which will take place in Dubai? It is going to be a challenging COP, not the least because of the geopolitical situation that we're currently confronting. Um, but also because of the decisions that will have to be taken at COP28. So COP28 is considered a milestone event. It is when the uh, parties to the Paris Agreement assess where we are. And I guess we, I don't need to tell you where we are because we just heard a report um, at the top of the hour, where we are in relation to the Paris Agreement goals, in particular, the long-term temperature goal, the 1.5 degree goal, and we're off track. And the intention of the global stock take is to take decisions that would put us back on track to, to course correct. And in order to do that, countries will have to, especially the major emitters or major economies, and will have to take decisions or make commitments that they are going to do exactly what we, we are hearing over and over again must be done. 
phase out the use of fossil fuels, not just phase down, just phase out. Um, we need to see greater scale of investment in renewable energy so that we're not just, it's not just an additionality, it's actually a replacement. Um, we need to see greater emphasis on other types of uh, greenhouse gas emissions. So methane um, needs to be addressed as well. In addition, there needs to be more money on the table to support all of this transition, uh, including for those projects and programs that don't necessarily have a return on investment. So adaptation and what I'm sure many of your listeners have now become very familiar with, loss and damage. These are very, very difficult decisions that leaders will have to take. Um, they have direct impact back home. Um, and uh, many countries, all countries are struggling with various variables that have uh, resulted from coming out of COVID, but dealing also with the fallout from the Ukraine war and um, inflation and other related issues. So these are going to be challenging times ahead, but there is still hope, signals that the world will, in fact, uh, make good on some of the promises that have already been undertaken through the Paris Agreement. So in short, you're optimistic about that there can be an outcome. It's not totally like, forget it. I am cautiously optimistic. <laughs> I guess I can say that. It'll take a lot of work. It'll take a lot of work. But I think, you know, what's important, and I think what has already come out from the discussion that we've had so far, is that it's not reliant solely on governments. You you need a groundswell of support, and you need a groundswell of support from people, from business, from industry. And that's happening. And what's important is to connect all the dots so that we can see that that is happening. Um, and that's really going to be important at COP28. We need to hear the voices. We need to change the acoustics so that it's not just the government. It's everyone. The big question is, what is the level of infiltration of fossil fuel in these policy spaces? And it's not insignificant. And it's not just from the Middle East um, or OPEC countries. Uh, you know, it's much broader than that. Um, some pavilions are even sponsored by fossil fuel entities. So, you know, it's 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 an ongoing and um, a very concerning uh, development. Uh, speaking about ESG and how uh, in uh, private sector or finance, um, uh, financial um, actors have now overtaken it to address um, greenwashing or to, you know, basically promote greenwashing. I mean, all of this becomes relevant in the context of the discussion of how our political leaders will, in fact, be able to take decisions. Because in the end, who has uh, lobbying power in major capitals? And and that's a significant question. It's, so mm -hmm. it is concerning that we do have a um, representative from a fossil fuel industry sitting at the helm. But um, it's more concerning what exactly is the extent of the influence of fossil fuel across the board in policy spaces at the global but also at the national levels. Well, it's been my worry that the fossil fuel industry itself is an expert at saying one thing and doing another. Fossil fuel industries in 2023 are expanding and they're looking to expand and sell more of their products. Over the last 10 years, its profits have soared 
on the back of wars and famines and just about everything else that's gone wrong, they've found ways to make money out of it, but they're not prepared to spend it on solving the climate crisis. And that's the real, real concern that I have. Might I just say that this is very true. And, you know, there are very positive signs about where renewable energy is going. And there's definitely increase in investment in renewable energy, but certainly not at the scale or pace that we need it to, to be at. And because there, the fossil fuel industry has been able to profit from more recent times um, and continue to gain, I think the last figure uh, that the IMF published is that uh, fossil fuel subsidies were at its highest at some $7 trillion in 2021 or 2022. I'll have to double check that um, the year. Um, but that's significant. When you look at what exactly is available for climate, the last climate policy initiative uh, finance landscape put climate finance around roughly $600 billion compared to these trillions of dollars that's going into the subsidies. So um, there's a definite need for systems transformation. And that's a big uh, message that's coming out of the global stock take. Um, there will need to be a greater focus on accountability. Um, and, and that becomes tricky when you deal with public sector financing, fine, um, private sector financing becomes a lot trickier in a global context. Um, and then, of course, um, there's a lot of discussion about what's happening in terms of private equity and how can we get accountability there. Um, so, there so there's a lot of emphasis now on how to um, bring sort of a magnifying glass to these claims of what you're doing. Um, how can there be some level of support outside through uh, international process to, to drive accountability? Um, there has been a lot of work um, in in the private sector to to address some of these issues with different standard setting bodies, but it's very fragmented, and there needs to be verifi verification of how robust those standards are, and in fact whether or not they are um, Paris uh, consistent. Mm. It sounds to me like you still have strong belief in the system. And that is just a question of that we need more support from people and from businesses in order to make it work. Am I hearing that right? Yes, yes, I do. I think um, one thing that gets lost oftentimes is when we, we talk about, we, we can very easily point to where the, the process has not worked. It's, it's always easy to do that. We don't always look at how it has. And quite frankly, since 2015, with the Paris Agreement, when we went into... Paris, we were looking at a four degree warmer world. And maybe maybe we're still heading there. <laughs> I hope not. Um, and then more recently, uh, with the, the nationally determined contributions or emission targets from countries, we've seen, you know, potentially, if it were they were implemented, a 2.7 degree worst case scenario, um, end of century. Um, so there has been impact. There's also been a generation, a new generation of people who are focused on the climate issue as a result of all of this work that has come out um, from uh, the work with Paris and the countries uh, advocating for higher ambition. So I think these are very important um, signals that the process may not be working as fast as possible, but it is there and it is creating creating the boundaries within which there is cooperation. And my last point would be, don't forget that the only platform 
that countries, small island developing states, you know, some that have, you know, populations of, you know, tens of thousands, if, if even, um, the only platform they have to be able to get their issues put on the table and addressed will be a multilateral forum. Without that, they're left on their own. And at present, they're already suffering the, the most severe consequences of climate change and um, the fallout in e the economic and, and um, financial uh, system. So without, without that multilateral process, you don't get those voices. You also don't get the voices of, of the people across the globe who want to see a difference, who want to make a difference. Mm. So I think it's important to recognize what multilateralism brings to this conversation. Chris Wilson, what's your take from your angle, from the business angle, Subax angle on the whole process with the United Nations and, and this need, this call in a way that we hear from Janine that, that businesses need to speak up now. Are they speaking up? Um, it's it's ne absolutely necessary. Of course, it's necessary. Um, but the reality is whatever comes back from the UN COP, be it you know climate, be it the biodiversity version, has to get written into hard and fast policies at the local, state and federal levels as quickly as possible. Uh, it's like I'm a big fan of Davos and, I'm, and I hate Davos for the same reason, because whilst it's on, everyone's interested, amazing discussions occur, et cetera, et cetera. We all know that. But the day after it needs to come back and governments such as the Australian government or any nation's government needs to have a very clear execution strategy for what comes home from these places. They need a dedicated group of people, just like when I, you know, in my old job, I used to convert to a big bank. I wanted to do a big transformation and words like digital and transformation get thrown around everywhere. And they'd ask us to come in and help them. We'd say, I don't want to talk to you about that. I want to meet the person who's going to be given the mandate to go and do this thing. Oh, I haven't found that person yet. Okay. What about the person who's going to do this thing? Oh, I haven't got that person yet. Well, that's all going to be in the planning, Chris. Well, last time I checked and Janine, you know far better than me. I think we've planned since the last COP to go back to the next COP. I think that's all we've done. And so that's my cynicism. We need to drag it into companies like who we support, but there's plenty of other companies out there who are on the ground talking to local council members and trying to get them to understand it's okay to make these decisions. And then to the state government level. So another company I work with um, called Seabin did an amazing job. They take plastics out of the water in Sydney Harbour using some proprietary technology. But they took the plastic out of the water and, and kept publishing it to everyone on their socials. Here's a Nestle wrapper. Here's a Coke bottle. I can guess what? Coke didn't like that. Nestle didn't like that. And they said, well, it's your wrapper. We didn't put it in the water. It's your wrapper. And so they came to, came to them and said, what are we going to do about it? They went to the New South Wales government and they banned single-use plastic bags in the supermarkets. A year later, they measured it, 72.3% reduction of those bags in Sydney Harbour. So it's got to come down to grassroots level. So you have to have that big conversation because, Janine, you're spot on. The amount of money that needs to be invested, no one government is going to be able to do it. So they need to create centralised financial opportunities, asset management systems, whatever they are. But it's that execution. It's the translation to action that gets lost. And, and as I said, I don't mean to be cynical, but it feels like it takes the years in between a cop <laughs> before you're back at the cop and then everyone says let's start again You're like what about what happened last year so that's my view 
Mm. Janine, what about the voices of these islands that you, in a way, represent today in our show here, anyway? All these islands that have now been told, we heard last week Colin mentioned a report from the Antarctica. No matter how much we reduce fossil fuel emissions, the ice is melting and it's unstoppable. And we're talking meters of sea level rise eventually. Don't we need to also hear those voices out there from these people on the islands? more strongly, for instance, here in Australia? I would totally endorse that call for more, um, for amplification of the voices of the small island developing states who are being impacted by sea level rise. And we know that this is this is a fact. It's, it's unavoidable. It's going to happen. It is happening. Um, and it's happening at a pace, again, much faster than um, was projected. Um, and you know, I think you celebrate 10 years and and you might lament, oh, well, 10 years and we're, we're still, you know, trying to hammer home this message that we need to do something. Well, think about 33 years that the small island developing states have been saying, listen, sea level rise is going to happen. It's going to impact us first, but it'll impact you also. We need to start doing something. And from from the 30 or, or 33 years ago when they started their advocacy, one of the issues that they put on the on the table was let's create a mechanism to deal with some of these unavoidable impacts, this loss and damage. And 30 years later, in Sharm El Sheikh, there was finally a fund that was agreed to be established or operationalized that will deal with loss and damage. And I think, you know, there there's a lot of concerns of what that can mean and how that could potentially overwhelm the climate system because, you know, then we're, we're focusing on essentially what is a last resort type of funding um, for these countries. Um, but it needs to be there. It's a safety net. It's, um, it's to safeguard, you know, with... Um, uh, these countries to deal with um, some of the worst impacts that climate will unleash and, and are unavoidable. But that's the last resort. We don't want to go there, um, but we may have to. Um, I think it's really important to recognize that the small island developing states um, have been the major advocates for benchmarking ambition with their survival. So the 1.5 degree that was actually small island developing states advocating for that. That's how that is in the Paris Agreement. When it comes to adaptation and ensuring that there's more work being done on adaptation, it's the small island developing states who have been the biggest advocates for that. So they, they play a very important role. Um, the problem is the responsiveness uh, of the system to these countries. Um, and, and I know uh, maybe your listeners are familiar with there's been a lot of talk about financial reform. Um, maybe your listeners will know about the Prime Minister of Barbados, Mia, Mia Moore Motley, who has been a major voice on financial reform, reform of the financial architecture. The fact of the matter is that the, the system that was created in the 1940s was created for a purpose that did not anticipate climate and so we're we're sort of building the plane as we're flying, um, but we have to do it. Uh, so the so you know the, the main point is that um, yes, we need to hear the small island developing states more. We need not only to hear them, we need to respond to them, and we also need to acknowledge that many of the things that we have in place right now started on the backs of the small island developing states. And, and I think that's really critical because then it also gives hope to those who are on the ground recognizing like, you know, maybe you feel a little bit of uh, frustration, 
but it is persistence and it is determination that will actually make a difference. Mm. 60 years ago, Dr. David Suzuki was recommending the action that we are now still arguing and trying to get the UN to do. Uh, it's been that long and we're still saying the same message. That uh, And he's still there, amazingly, at 80-odd, as is Sir David Attenborough. But it's by the by for that. We know that the UN, it's really the only mechanism that can solve this because it's the only world government organization, if you like. We can't do it individually. It's not just if China and America get it. We still, uh, if they move completely together, shoulder to shoulder, we still would have climate change problems. We've all got to do this, every nation together. And we know that the UN itself can't agree on anything. Um, if, if they could, we wouldn't have two wars raging at the moment because wars aren't very good for the climate apart from anything else. But um, the structure and the politics of the UN is such that you can't get them all to agree. I'll ask you simply, do you think that there will ever be a time when the world will act together? Yes, that is not an easy question to answer. Um, but I, what I would say is that, you know, over the span of the existence of the United Nations. Um, nations have come together to agree to some basic values, um, basic principles. Uh, there has been a whole architecture of human rights treaties that have been developed. We've gone beyond human rights and we've also addressed um, security related issues. We've done, you know, now two rounds of uh, development agendas. And yes, we haven't been successful on them, but but they have generated a lot of um, good work on the ground. Um, we've had now, I think, three generations of financing for development agendas, which have really changed focus um, now to sustainable um, development and sustainable finance. Um, for the small island developing states, there have been four rounds of development agendas. A fourth will occur next year. Um, there are a lot of different elements of cooperation that have been established, a lot of basis for cooperation, a lot of principles upon which we're supposed to cooperate. And, and I think we have to hold those as the anchor for the potential of um, creating a consensus around lines that, that may be workable. And, and we have them, as I said, the, the challenge is that there are lots of really egregious um, uh, breaking of those laws or rules um, that that we see, and those get amplified more than than the positives. And I think, you know, it's it's difficult not to do that. Um, it, we have a, a a media that that tends to amplify those. And and it just re it requires agitation from the other end that that there there are other positive things. I think something that you do um, uh, just to go back to to the the um, the first guest from Subak, um, you know, being able to connect from even data points um, that's a really significant, a very important part of starting to look at potential solutions. Um, I worked on the Oceans Treaty um, that I mentioned, which deals with marine biodiversity in areas beyond national jurisdiction. And that was one of the most challenging things because, you know, an area beyond national jurisdiction, nobody owns it and anyone can use it. 
um, and take what they have. But not everyone can use it. Um, there are some who are more capable than others to, and they take from it what you know could be beneficial to humanity. And we had to look at one area called marine genetic resources and think about how do we create a fair and equitable benefit sharing regime to ensure that we're all benefiting in the end. Um, and it required uh, some serious consideration of data sharing and creating open source data in order for that transparency and accountability and eventual equitable sharing to occur. Um, so, you know, just going right down to these basic elements um, uh, will will generate ways in which, you know, in the end, um, maybe it's not the, the leaders all all saying yes together, but it's a majority of us saying yes, and the majority of our people who are behind us um, propelling us forward. Janine, we've talked a lot now about the United Nations, but we haven't heard what are you actually doing at the Melbourne University? Well, I'm excited to announce that on the 8th of November, we will be launching the Indo-Pacific Climate Hub, which is a research collaborative network aimed to amplify the voices of the Indo-Pacific region in the context of adaptation and resilience. The network will bring together experts from all over uh, to identify areas and priorities of action for um, sharing data, um, building capacity, um, elevating voices of leadership. And we're focused on four particular areas. So that's health, agriculture, and just energy transitions and governance and regulations. And rather than taking a sectoral approach to these issues, we're looking at a more integrated approach so that we can have voices uh, coming together to look at how each one of these impacts the other and can help accelerate um, higher ambition and action um, for adaptation and resilience. So it's a, it's a really big and exciting um, project. And it sounds very much uh, in relation to Subak and everything they talk about yes. with data gathering, but also this thing about that we need to hear the stories of the islands more here in Australia. Uh, are you going to have like a, a media person, somebody who is making sure that your stories get out in the Australian media? We, we plan to do social media um, once we've gotten the workshop underway since it's a live event. So we do plan to do that. And I'm sure that we will be able to um, share our, the launch of our website um, and uh, make that available to, to viewers to see. Which leads us to Chris Wilson. Oh, look, I, I would just, you know, so you've got principles and policy, which is very much the global agenda versus policing in action. Um, I think everything Janine just said is sort of highlighted exactly that. So we need to be able to set principles and policies of how across the globe on human rights, on, you know, equity issues, on slavery issues, on all sorts of issues, we need to set the principles and the policy agenda, absolutely. But the bottom line is the earth is a complex place. Uh, the geographical borders create even more complications on top of just the earth's complications. And so without the mass groundswell of people coming up below their governments, and then you get into different types of democracies, dictatorships, do the people really have a voice? So these things all need to be solved. But each country, to your point, Colin, if the US and China went shoulder to shoulder, it wouldn't solve the problem for all of us. But my goodness, if those two went shoulder to shoulder, would it solve a big problem for all of us? Um, but, I, uh, but I appreciate your sentiment. But every nation state needs to come back from these, you know, uh, 
platforms and cops, et cetera, with those policy guidelines. And just back to my last point, get clear on the actions they're going to take. And, and this political cycle of every three years we vote, we've, we've got a bunch of frameworks which go against everything that comes back from large policy frameworks because they have to then be put into these little policy frameworks, which are actually, how do I get voted in in the next two years? It's yeah. counterintuitive. It's never going to work. Um, so we just keep to, need to keep pushing the data. The data sharing chain is so important. Um, we need to start storytelling much more actively, much more proactively. We need to put these people on the front pages, not the person who's just become the youngest billionaire in Australia. We need to put the person who's just shared open source data that's allowed a marine biologist to solve a seaweed problem in Canada. That's who we should be talking about. So there's storytelling, there's narrative strategies, all sorts of things that need to sit in. That's sort of like the glue in between the little bricks that come down from the, the big UN and, and COP policy frameworks. And I think what you're doing on the Sustainable Hour and the Business Revolution, they're the sort of things we need more of. Well, thank you for that, Chris. And look, I'd like to thank both you and Janine for your input. I'd vote for you both. It all sounds to me like that this idea that we launched on Saturday, which is that we, we can use a flag of the people. You know, flags are powerful symbols. The white flag, for instance, everyone knows what a white flag means, don't they? It means either surrender or, in a way, peace. And now we have a, a flag with a simple a message, in a way. It's just a green flag with a blue dot on. The green symbolizes life. And the blue symbolizes our planet and water, I guess, as well, the, the color blue. And as simple as that, we can all be subscribing to that we, are, we want to protect planet Earth and all life on it. That's what the flag is about. So uh, from everything we've talked about today, you have uh, encouraged me that uh, we are on the right path and we just need another 10 years maybe, and then we'll get there. Let's hope. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. Let's go out and uh, as we have said in the last 10 years, we always end the program with saying, be the difference. 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 I know the world's gone mad. It's true. Be the difference. Be the difference. I see a fighter logged in you. This report doesn't tell us what to do. It doesn't say you have to do this and then you have to do this. It doesn't provide us with such solutions or tell us that you need to do this. And that's up for us. We are the ones who need to take to take the decisions and we are the ones who need to be brave and ask the, the difficult questions to ourselves. Like, what do we value? So am I gonna open everything up? Am I gonna let fury fill my cup? Am I gonna be an anthem singing in the dark? Gonna light up like a burning heart? Am I gonna stand still as a rock? While everything shakes and tumbles off? Am I gonna remember the truth? Cause I wanna be nasty, wanna be brave Not let his fear make me afraid I don't wanna pretend I'm too small to jump the wall I'm just trying to remember her voice Telling me that every day is a choice For where there's good, there's bad And my child, you 
always can. <laughs>